This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Well, our election is still three months away, but... Election 23. It's going to be the potholes and ram raids election. Oh, goodness. I hope there is uh, more to it than that. Well, we hope so too. But this week, there was plenty of coverage of our political parties rolling out policies to combat crime... And these were prompted in no small part by public opinion. And a cynic might say that it's poll-driven and 87 no. days out. No. Not me. We look at that and also the rather creative interpretations in some of our media of the results of the latest TV political opinion poll. But first, politics as usual was brought to a halt last Thursday with those shocking shootings in the Auckland CBD that morning. And once again, it sent some of our media into emergency news coverage. Just gone 9am, but we are staying on air today because there is an unfolding incident in central Auckland. Police are responding to reports of a serious incident on Key Street in Auckland CBD this morning. But this time, the world's media paid attention too because it all happened on a day that a huge global sports event kicked off in the city. Hey, it's great to be with you. And that uh, the one fan who was talking about Antarctica, I think she was pretty right. I've seen this fan base travel all over the world and this is the farthest they've come yet, but the numbers are amazing. That was the Philadelphia Enquirer newspaper's soccer reporter Jonathan Tannenwald on RNZ's morning report last Wednesday, sharing the enthusiasm of one fan of the US national women's team. Now that fan said that she'd have gone as far as Antarctica to back their team's bid to retain the FIFA Women's World Cup, prompting host Corin Dan to warn Jonathan Tannenwald that the weather here could have a pretty Antarctic tinge to it here in wintertime. How are the players uh, in playing in, in cold, wet, windy weather? <laughs> Particularly, well, it can be anywhere in New Zealand, to be honest. Look, we got a lot of cold, wet, windy weather in the United States, too. And, and they're, not, they're not everybody on this team's from Los Angeles where it's sunny <laughs> all the time. You know, there's plenty of folks from, from the eastern United States, where I'm from, from the Midwest, from, from the Northwest, and so on. But 24 hours later, on the day of the big kickoff, the weather was the least of their worries, and a story more familiar to Americans unfolded in central Auckland early on Thursday. Um, before we return to normal programming, we've actually got some breaking news this morning. Police are responding to reports of a serious incident on Key Street in Auckland's central business district this morning. We understand there are a number of armed police currently headed to the scene or already there. The public is being asked to stay indoors and avoid the area. Now, reporters were swiftly at the scene in Lower Queen Street and one reason for that was that breakfast show broadcasts had been arranged to mark the World Cup opening at the nearby fan zone on the waterfront, which was due to open at midday. But all that changed after a witness called police at 7.23am to report there was a man with a gun and police arrived 12 minutes later, followed by armed defenders. And Emma Olsen was live on air from there for the AM show on TV3 just minutes later. Is this isolated from that? Is this is this not nothing to do with the FIFA fan zone? No, this is nothing to do with the FIFA fan zone, Lloyd. We were at the cloud just before this happened, and then we saw all the commotion, so we ran down, and that's when I started talking to the construction workers who said that they'd all been evacuated because there was someone unknown inside the building who was causing an alarm to the workers who was supposedly putting them in danger, and so that's why they all evacuated. No one knows exactly who this person is what they're doing but as I said before one of the workers who was inside said that they supposedly had a gun. And in shot behind Emma Olsen soon after gunshots were heard was the hotel of the team from Norway which kicked off the tournament with the football ferns at Eden Park that night. 
in the area there. Incre incredible stuff there from um, Emma, right in the guts of that. And the footage that we saw of the, I think it was an undercover police officer coming out with blood all over them. Must be pretty terrifying for police, pretty terrifying for members of the public, and particularly probably quite scary for the Norway football team, which is staying at the M Social Hotel, which is right next to where all of this is unfolding. So. The AM show's live footage then showed a police officer with upper body injuries being led to an ambulance, after which further grim facts started to come out. Meanwhile, TVNZ's breakfast show asked Nancy, an eyewitness in a neighbouring building, where she was getting her news. No, we have messages coming from the email from our phones and as well as we are in front of the computer. So we look at the NZ Herald and stuff.co.nz. Now, both the online major news sites were already running rapidly updated blogs at that point with eyewitness accounts and images and official information as well. And both were excellent sources in a confusing but clearly dangerous and deadly situation. And essential information about transport changes and cordons and closures also had to be communicated. And Mike Hosking did his bit with that on his News Talk ZB breakfast show. All buses running through this area will need to be deterred until further notice. All ferries have been cancelled. So the place is a mess. And if you can avoid it, I would avoid it and just, you know, not come into town at all. More AOS officers are now on the move in Key Street. But while he was at it, Mike Hosking also criticised local city councillors for issuing messages he thought were unnecessary and the police for not issuing enough. I mean, there's a couple of councillors coming out saying, can you stay safe and stuff. I mean, is that all they got to do, really? Is that what you do as a councillor? Um, but there is some... The police need to... What I'm trying to say here is without crossing a line is the police need to say something, and fairly soon, uh, because there's a lot to be said, and the longer they leave this, the more vacuum there is. Now, having raised alarm about that, Mike Hosking then launched into an interview about Nigel Farage's bank account problems in the UK before returning to the drama on his doorstep and putting this into the information vacuum he just warned about. Uh, Wayne Brown, the mayor, uh, he says the shooter's actually dead. Uh, asked, he was asked whether that's been confirmed by the police. He said they don't need me bothering him, but um, the mayor of Auckland has suggested that the shooter is dead. And apart from that, that's, it's started, the information flow is starting to slow, indicating that things might be, might be uh, concluding. Now, airing second-hand reports sourced to a mayor who had been heavily criticised after previous emergencies for failing to impart information to a city properly isn't necessarily best practice. Neither is guessing that that might mean the end of the emergency was nigh on Thursday. Now, the claim of the shooter's death was made by the mayor just minutes earlier on TVNZ's breakfast show, almost in passing and in amongst a laundry list of information about transport services and road closures during a pretty hard-to-hear phone interview like this. Yeah. Put a cordon around it and, um, and you can understand that. Yeah. I understand yeah. the latest thing is that the shooter's actually dead so that the, the rules stay locked down for a bit longer. Mayor Brown, have you, had that, have you had that from police? Have they spoken to you about that or is this just unconfirmed reports that you're hearing? We're not bothering the police just at the moment. They're under immense pressure. I know um, Sam Oil pretty well and, and speak to them regularly, but right at the moment they don't need me bothering them. And that raised the question, if the police hadn't told Wayne Brown that the gunman was dead, well, who did? Sorry, sorry Mayor Brown, just because we've got you on the phone and we just want to double-check, we heard you correctly, is it your understanding that the shooter or the person at the centre of this incident is dead? Well, that's what I, that's what I think. Of, that's what I have heard, and no-one's absolutely sure about that.
Well, that was some way short of reliable information and there was no actual explanation of who else thought so but wasn't sure. And that was made clear to breakfast viewers again like this. I want to be really clear that it is an unconfirmed report uh, that a man has died. Uh, we will, of course, ask police for clarification over that incident. Turned out that Wayne Brown wasn't actually wrong about the shooter's death. Before long, the police confirmed it and the Prime Minister reiterated it in a later media conference as well. And the Mayor also wasn't wrong about this. From this dreadful situation in, in downtown, which couldn't have come at a worse time given the fact that the world's got its eye on us now with the FIFA soccer thing. Well, the Women's World Cup organisers wouldn't have been thrilled to hear the biggest sporting event ever held in this country called the FIFA soccer thing. But soon after, the Prime Minister also spoke about the world's gaze being on the city. Clearly with the FIFA World Cup kicking off this evening, there are a lot of eyes on Auckland. The government's spoken to FIFA organisers this morning and the tournament will proceed as planned. After carrying that media conference live on News Talk ZB, morning host Kerry Woodham wasn't impressed by the PM's reassurances. Actually, I could have done that better, couldn't I? When I think about it. Just stop. Anyway, that's, I mean, the Prime Minister has to be seen to respond to a mass shooting. So, uh, especially when we have the eyes of the world upon us with the FIFA World Cup beginning tonight. Meanwhile, TVNZ's Jenny Mae Clarkson and Chris Chang, who were at the fan zone to hype up the World Cup, also wondered what the rest of the world would make of what happened that morning so close to the team hotels and the fan zone. As you, if you've just tuned in now, in the last wee while, we were down here uh, at the cloud, Jenny Mae, for uh, the FIFA Fan Festival um, yeah. opening, really, for the World Cup, because, of course, that is front of mind at the moment with um, with the first game this morning, it's, uh, this evening, rather, little, at 7 o'clock. Later on tonight, and as you were saying, you know, the eyes of the world are on New Zealand at the moment with uh, this World Cup getting underway tonight. So everybody down here at the moment just, yeah, in some kind of shock. And Online, the Herald circulated a summary of international media reaction with these words. As the eyes of the world fell on Aotearoa for the launch of the World Cup, our violent streets were laid bare for the world. And the Herald picked out the Daily Mail, world leaders in pumping out online clickbait, as reporting the incident as a mass shooting after a gunman stormed a high-rise building just hours before the World Cup opening match. Now, a more measured version of the story made news bulletins on the BBC World Service after that, following the latest from the war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, when News Talk ZB opened its talkback and text lines, comparisons with South Africa's urban problems were made by the callers, along with criticism of cyclists. On the waterfront there, there's, you know, obviously cycleways and, and such, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and bikes were just riding straight through, and the police were throwing up their hands in, in despair, and then another one would fly straight through. Uh, it, it was... It was <laughs> so they were ignoring the cordons? Ah, oh, they had the headphones on, you know, they, they were doing their thing. Interesting. Yep. Mayor Wayne Brown appeared on News Talk ZB later in the day and again was asked about the international gaze on his city. Millions of eyes on New Zealand and the response to this morning's event. How are you feeling about, about being a public face for Auckland at this time? Well, nobody wants to be the public face of a city that's had a tragedy like that, but you have to step up to it. I've been on Australian TV and others and pointing out that it is safe. This is something that we're not used to. It's not Americans are a bit more used to than this than we are, but we are not used to this. And so it's been important for me to let the rest of the world know that this is a very, very unusual event.
And it was a dignified and measured response there from the Mayor, who did succeed in conveying that this was something pretty unprecedented for Auckland's CBD. And while he was far from the only one on Thursday characterising the deadly shootings as a US-style event, that wasn't the take of one Kiwi who lives there, John Riley, the father of US-born football fern captain Ali Riley, who told the AM show on TV Channel 3 it was something he'd never experienced here or there. I've never actually seen a policeman pointing a gun at anyone, and so it's just quite shocking to what I hear today. As life returned to more like normal for people in Auckland on Thursday, attention shifted to the big match over which the shootings had cast a shadow. And New Zealand's surprise win over Norway that night did raise the spirits of sports fans in the city. Though that, and the minute's silence before kickoff, will have been no consolation to loved ones of those who died violently on Thursday morning. But even after the moment of triumph, football ferns captain Ali Riley and live coverage on Sky Sports, Prime TV and streamed live for free by Stuff had the grace to say that the game was not the most important thing in Auckland that day and acknowledge those who were in harm's way and who made things safe again. This morning something really, really tragic happened and we wanted to bring something positive tonight and we thought of the victims and the first responders and they made us so proud and we wanted to just help bring something amazing today. Well, you've absolutely done that. You've made a statement here tonight. The Herald's football writer Michael Burgess said the opening game was one of the most extraordinary matches in our sporting history and told his readers this about what happened on Thursday night at Eden Park. You will never see this again. You could never dream to see this again. But let's also hope the same is true of what happened in Auckland on Thursday morning. Not long after the shootings on Thursday morning, it was reported that the 24-year-old gunman was on home detention for family violence offences, but he had special permission to visit the construction site where he was employed. The Prime Minister has said a full review will be launched into what triggered the terrible sequence of events and whether there were any red flags that should have been picked up. The media and commentators have already been raising questions about the increased use of home detention and the discounting of prison sentences for those guilty of serious offences and even the effectiveness of the gun buyback scheme and access to firearms. But for now, other politicians have refrained from adding their views in the media, though that's likely to change with an election on the way, a point made on Morning Report's political editors panel on Friday morning like this but it is impossible to ignore that wider backdrop with the government under pressure over crime. This shooting is not going to end this debate. If anything, it's likely to inflame it. And Jess, today, so yesterday, uh, Christopher Luxon and Mark Mitchell held a press conference. The Prime Minister held a press conference. Um, uh, Jenny Anderson has been speaking. I mean, it's a diff- it was a difficult day yesterday. Absolutely, and I think it's really challenging for politicians to know when to dive in and when to pull back. It's a little different for the Prime Minister in those situations because we need to hear from him early about the ideological or political elements to that, if there are any, of course, there weren't in this case. But I do think that whole idea of feeling safe and feeling like crime is under control is going to be an element in the lead-up to the election. Law and order and crime and punishment are election issues that rival politicians have flagged already in a big way this past week. Last night saw another crime spree across Christchurch as the government struggles to get a handle on the ram raid epidemic. Today it announced a new gang and youth crime crackdown to try and get it under control. 
Using youths to commit crimes will become an aggravating factor at sentencing, and so will posting footage of crimes like ram raids online. That was Mike McRoberts kicking off News Hub at 6 last Monday, shortly after the Prime Minister announced those new moves to tackle youth crime, which has become so heavily featured in the news media lately. Now, many of the crimes have also been amplified by social media, something News Hub's political editor Jenna Lynch took the Prime Minister to task over as well. We'll reach out to the social media companies as well um, to look at whether there's more that they can do. Did you just make that up on the fly? Are you really going to contact the social media companies to tell them to take down? No, we've had had several conversations about that. And it remains to be seen if the big offshore online platforms, already wary of government plans to extend regulation of them, will be on side with this mission to make safer communities together, suddenly, in cyberspace. But in the meantime, reporters were clear that communities were not feeling safe from crime and that was driving the sudden spate of government crime policies. Right, Jenna, the community has been fed up for some time, but is the government a little late to the party this time? Yeah, finally picking up on the depth of anger in the electorate. This is reactive and it is rushed. They hurried this out in such a fluster that embarrassingly they mucked up their own policy. Chris Hipkins initially announced that commissioning kids to commit a crime would be a new offence with a 10-year sentence. That was wrong. They had to issue a correction and dial that back to just an aggravated factor in sentencing. And Jenna Lynch pointed out also that those measures and further ones drip-fed into the news on Tuesday and Wednesday however urgent, have no real chance of becoming law before the election in October. And the National Party's Justice spokesperson Paul Goldsmith told reporters that these measures were clearly rushed. It looks uh, a shambles, uh, they're scrambling, uh, they're pulling stuff together and making mistakes. But the opposition have been dropping their own piece-by-piece pre-election proposals on crime into the news cycle too lately. And last month, it was Paul Goldsmith who was accused of not really thinking them through. Revictimising through videos can also be considered. So basically these provisions are already in the Act. Well, well, that's that's a very broad... uh, um, uh, and uh, coverage that you're talking about here. What we're, we're obviously just trying to make it explicit. So there are a number of things that are explicitly listed as aggravating factors, and we want to include it in that. Earlier, the National Party had proposed making gang membership also an aggravating factor to boost sentences for those convicted of crimes, even though it wasn't clear how membership could be confirmed. And the ACT Party rolled out a justice policy in May that was partly prompted by a Herald on Sunday front page in April, which claimed that some people weren't being arrested because the country's biggest prison, Rimutaka Jail, was too full, when it actually wasn't. Now, both proposals got plenty of media coverage, though, thanks to the media's elevated interest in crime. And on Wednesday, after the government announced two new youth justice facilities to be built, but no budget or timeline for them, News Talk ZB's political editor Jason Walls told the fill-in host Jack Tame this. There's been a, a distinct uptick in the rhetoric about law and order in the past week. And a cynic, Jack, might say that it's poll-driven and 87 no. days out. No, not no. me, not me, not no. me. Jason, no, no. <laughs> well, you don't really need to be a cynic to think that all this is really driven by public opinion. And the media, of course, play a part in that. For example, earlier this month, News Habit 6 screened this. Auckland cameraman Tim Raythel has been covering overnight breaking news for News Hub for 17 years. He says he's never seen crime as bad as it is now. From what I'm hearing, uh, there's been three shootings in South Auckland this weekend. So two in Otara and one in Manurewa. So 
it looks like things could be ramping up again. Yeah, well, what do I say? It's not surprising. I mean, the last couple of years in Auckland has just been crazy. And cameraman Tim Raythel's video diary was interrupted that night by reporter Amanda Gillies making this claim. For every crime, there's a victim. Shopkeepers, business owners, everyday good Kiwis. And the toll, it's huge. It's mental, financial, physical. And it seems there's no sign of it slowing down. As we've heard on Media Watch in recent times, some offences are slowing down, though you wouldn't know it from reports like that one, in which the opposition police spokesperson Mark Mitchell later insisted that the media were not making enough of crime. The media are reporting exactly what crime is happening, and by the way, after what you've seen, they're actually underreporting. There's a lot more violent crime and a lot more violence happening in our communities and our cities around the country that's going unreported. It's a result of a soft-on-crime Labor government. When the Prime Minister's science advisor recently released a report called Towards an Understanding of Aotearoa New Zealand's Adult Gang Environment, the Capital's daily paper The Post said... It would be hard to pick a worse time than on the eve of an election campaign that will be characterised by a tough-on-crime arms race between political parties. But another way of looking at it would be that it's actually the perfect time. However, the Post said this does not seem to be a year when people want to hear nuanced crime messages. Well, as we heard earlier, it's been a week full of reports about crime and justice in our media and of political parties and their policies to get tough on it. But in amongst all that, there was also a court case which the media followed intensely. Live online coverage of the trial of Lauren Dickerson, who's accused of killing her three children in Temaru, has been Stuff's most viewed story all week long, in spite of a warning that says this blog contains details many people will find extremely upsetting. Now, some people were upset by Stuff publishing almost every bit of evidence as soon as it was heard in court, along with updated audio reports from reporters at the court in Christchurch, while other media also heavily reported the same developments, along with personal family photos of the accused and her now-dead children. At one point, the judge, Justice Cameron Mander, directed the media not to invite comment in relation to media articles, prompting the Herald to suspend online comments on their reporting. I looked at all that on Midweek Media Watch this week, our weekly catch-up with Knights here on RNZ National. And while I was at it, I talked to Mark Leishman about the media coverage of the crimes of Sir James Wallace, the response to the Prime Minister ruling out wealth taxes, Tova O'Brien returning to the media while some other senior editors are heading for the exit, and that tabloid scoop about a BBC presenter, which turned out not to be a matter for the police, or, for that matter, the country's national weather forecaster. Have we had any response from the BBC about Hugh Edwards' resignation and or where has that Met Office investigation at? That's this week's Midweek Media Watch. If you missed it, you'll find it on our section of the RNZ app or wherever you get your podcasts. As we heard earlier, News Talk ZB's political editor Jason Walls reckoned that Labour's sudden tough-on-crime policies this week were powered by public opinion. And a cynic, Jack, might say that it's poll-driven and 87 no. days out. No. Not me. And that same morning, his colleague at ZB, Mike Hosking, addressed, or more accurately, harangued the Prime Minister personally with a similar claim. Did you work that out when the National Party announced that those filming these sort of events will get extra sentencing because it's an aggravating event and so you copied it? 
Or did you work it out when you saw yet another poll with your party tanking because among the many other things you've cocked up? Now, Mike Hosking was asking Chris Hipkins that the morning after the latest TV opinion poll, which political reporters had all been waiting for. But did Labour actually tank in that poll, as Mike Hosking said there? Though, as Hayden Donnell now reports, he wasn't alone in saying so. Kia ora, good evening. National and ACT could form the next government, just according to our latest One News Varian poll. It is just under three months until the election, and Labour seems to have been dented by a series of ministerial distractions. That's One News presenter Simon Dello summing up the results of the newly named One News Varian poll. Despite that valiant effort to paint the poll as a harsh verdict on the government's screw-ups, it was mostly notable for how unnotable it was. Few parties moved more than the margin of error from the last One News poll in May, which also showed National and Act with the numbers to form the next government just. You might have thought the damp squib of a result would put the clamps on our political commentators' narrative-crafting abilities. Instead, for some, it proved to be a blank canvas on which they could express their boundless creativity. At Stuff, Chief Political Editor Luke Malpass wrote this sentence under a headline hailing a centre-right surge. Another poll? Another Philip for the right? One small issue with that, the poll showed a 2% drop for National and a 1% overall drop for the right bloc. The MediaWatch team has no qualifications in statistics, but we understand Phillips generally involve polls going up, not down. Similarly, a drop in support doesn't traditionally meet the definition of a surge in support. The lack of any big statistical swings wasn't enough to deter some commentators from making big calls. On News Talk ZB, political editor Jason Walls said Labour was clearly plunging due to its disunity. Well, I mean, obviously you just have to look at what's happened within the Labour Party within the last couple of weeks or so. Although, despite the fact that we had the Prime Minister in China meeting Xi Jinping, we had him over in Europe meeting with um, Vladimir Zelensky, albeit just a hallway meeting rather than a bilateral, all he's been really able to talk about is what's happening within the Labour Party, be it mm. Stuart Nash, be it other ministers that have been behaving badly, Jan Tanetti um, and a number of others. And that's voters punish that. Voters punish, and we've seen yeah. this from the Nats in opposition – they punish disunity, and it's clearly down to that. Labour dropped 2% in this poll. It's uncertain what National's equivalent 2% drop was down to. Perhaps voters punish unity as well. Much Mackay's own commentary was a bit more nuanced, placing the poll in the context of wider trends. But the questions to her weren't always quite so measured. Here she is on TVNZ's Breakfast the day after the poll's release. One News political editor Jessica Much Mackay joins us now. Jess, the news is just getting worse and worse for Labour and Chris Hipkins, isn't it? Look, it's not a great poll for Labour, but I understand behind the scenes it's not quite as bad as they thought it could be. And perhaps looking at some of those numbers, National hasn't quite capitalised on what could have been an even worse result for them. Perhaps that air of disbelief inside Labour also extended to the parliamentary press gallery. After all, the commentators are right. Labour has had a terrible few months, with high-ranking ministers defecting, being stood down, being censured by the Parliamentary Privileges Committee, facing allegations of mistreating staff, or struggling with the apparently near-impossible task of selling shares in Auckland Airport. 
Maybe a sense of inertia propelled some of our gallery members to keep rolling with the narrative, even if it didn't marry up with the poll's actual results. Or maybe part of the issue is that hyping the significance of these individual polls is a financial fillip for news organisations which pay a lot to commission them. Stuff political reporter and commentator Andrea Vance talked about that recently on the organisation's daily Newsable podcast. I mean, you're going to squeeze the hell out of it, right? You paid 11, 12, whatever grand for a poll. You got It's got to be the top story. It's mm-hmm. got to be your lead. You've got to have the fancy graphics and, uh, oh, God, I'm never going to get a job again. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's and I think this is fundamentally... This, I think this, that I think your question goes to the gut of why I feel so strongly about it because oh, it, it just feels like we're manufacturing news, mm-hmm. right? We're taking a piece of information that is a snapshot in time, and we're pretending that we know the future. We're pret- and that's bad, right? That's that's not a good thing. We shouldn't be doing that. Vance went on to say these kinds of snapshot polls don't actually tell us all that much. Actually, they're telling us what's happening right there and then and in the past. So we're using them the wrong way around, right? Polls are valuable when you look at them as a trend over a long period of time. One poll will not tell you what you need to know. It'll tell you about a point in time, but it won't tell you about a trend. It definitely cannot tell you what's going to happen at the election. There was a disclaimer, though. Vance said long-term polling trends are worth paying attention to. It's probably no coincidence then that the most useful analysis of this latest poll focused on those macro trends. In a piece for onenews.co.nz, John Campbell noted voters' slow drift away from the centre, with Labour losing 20% of the electorate's support since 2020 and National failing to fully capitalise on that drop-off. He quoted Yates' line, the centre cannot hold, before asking this question. What do Labour and National stand for, really? Perhaps, just perhaps, this is a growing section of the electorate saying you're almost as bad as each other. That sentiment has been echoed by other commentators. In his latest column for Metro magazine, pundit and former National Party comms man Matthew Hooten decried the major party's lack of ambition. At least act the Greens and Te Pāti Māori aren't insulting you with bullshit. Instead, they offer ideas they think will make your life better, even if they'll never happen. So, here's a better idea than falling for the big scare from National or Labour. How about using your ballot paper to tell them to f*** off and reward one of the three ideas parties with your vote instead? And on his podcast, The Kaka, financial journalist Bernard Hickey and commentator Daniel McLaughlin criticised our major parties for their grey managerialism. You kind of have to go back to the mid-1990s. So many people just hated the two major parties because they didn't trust anything they said. And you saw the rise of New Zealand First and the Alliance and the ACT Party. And so we kind of seem to be going through a similar phase now. It's really the two major parties are just these managerial centrist parties. Neither of them really have anything to offer in terms of a vision. So people are going to the other parties. Maybe it's a little shaky to say anyone's surging or flopping on the basis of a couple of percentage points shifting in a single poll. But if you zoom out a bit, at least one narrative does have a strong foundation. And that's voters saying, to misquote Shakespeare this time, a plague on both your untaxed houses. Hayden Donnell there, looking back at some of the creative interpretations in the media of the results of the latest TV political opinion poll. 
Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday with Midweek Media Watch during nights. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.